to go ahead and dive in and get started with our message today. And it was a few months ago where we started our journey through the book of Titus. And one of the first things that they teach us when we're in um, seminary, as you're in the latter part of it, and you're preparing to preach through a book, is um, they basically talk to you about uh, the ex- expositional preaching outline that is really defines your approach to how you're going to preach through a book. And so I've shared this in the past, but the groups of sentences in the Greek, they're not called paragraphs, they're actually called pericopes. And what they do is they track the flow of thought of the author as he was recording, being guided, superintended by the Holy Spirit to reward God's word. And you, you look at the pericopes and then you see the things um, conceptually, thought-wise, how, how they, they flow. And you want to try to preach messages in um, congruence with that current. You want to go with the flow. <laughs> Cliché. But um, I was working on my expositional outline, and I had this M thing working. Okay, And so Paul was all about the ministry. And so I started with Paul in verse 1 as the ministry messenger. And then as I got to verses 2 and 3, we spent some time talking about the ministry motive. And then that uh, set us up for the leadership in the church, which I had an M word, which because it was elders in the church, referring to men, talking to Titus, Paul and Titus establishing elders in the churches, it was men. So you had ministry men. Well, it was when, we got, when I got to the verses that I'm going to preach today, it was on false teachers. And I was struggling to come up with an M word to keep my streak alive, you know? It's just kind of this crazy thing that we have as preachers. It's really stupid, but we just kind of, you know, it's like, oh, I want to try to come up with an M word. And so I thought about it extensively, and I could, I mean, I came up with nothing. So um, that evening I was um, talking to Victoria at dinner, and I kind of shared my dilemma, dilemma with her and referred to my helpmate because that's what she's there for. And I said, I want you to do something for me. I said, um, I'm trying to come up with an outline, a uh, preaching outline for Titus, and I want you to give me the first M word that comes to mind when I say false teachers. And she just looked at me and she said, maggots. <laughs> and I just stood there and she was like waiting for my response. And I was like, that's perfect. I mean, it really is perfect. A little gross, but all things considered, it really communicates the uh, disdain that we should have for false teachers. Raise your hand if you've ever um, seen an animal or uh, been exposed to a trash bin where you've had the opportunity to see a collection of maggots. Anyone had that experience? I think a lot of us have. Um, I was raised on a farm in northern Illinois, and we had pigs, and we had cattle. We had a couple horses, even had some chickens, and on occasion, you know, animals die, and flies are around, and before you know it, they can be consumed with maggots. I got to see that really on a regular basis whenever corpses would be laying around the farm. They actually had what was called a rendering service. It was a truck that would come to pick up the big animals to properly um, 
you know, get rid of, uh, get rid of them, dispose of them. And that truck did not smell good whenever it pulled up the, our long driveway in rural Illinois. There's really nothing appealing about magnets and everything that is associated with them. Typically when we think of maggots, we think of dead animals on the side of the road or on the road or maybe spoiled food. But what damage or threat do maggots pose to things that are living? What threat do they pose? Many people don't know this, but growing up on a farm, it was common for animals to get cut and sometimes uh, or have sores on their bodies. And some of that had to do with the reality that some of the things that they would lay on, some of the bedding that they would lay on, um, the straw would be coarse and they could actually develop um, like bed sores. And then sometimes they might get bit by another animal, either of their own kind or uh, of, of a different kind. Or they might uh, run into a barbed wire fence and get cut on a barbed wire fence or bump up against a pole or something that could cause an abrasion. And a human body or an animal body provides a great source of sustenance and is an ideal place for flies to lay eggs. A fly, for example, can eat well on um, one of those exposures, and they can lay as many as 300 eggs that can hatch in a single day. Okay? Maggots, the larvae that emerge from the eggs, are extremely efficient and thorough flesh eaters. And... If they're not dealt with, um, they can pose a real threat. We spent five Sundays on those, and we, we want to study the real thing. We want to know the real thing. That's what allows us to identify frauds. That's what uh, allows us to identify the false teachers. And we're only going to spend today looking at the message. And just like there are many different counterfeits of U.S. money, there are many different examples of infectious false teachers. They plant seeds or lay eggs of destruction. And let's look how verse 11 describe their infectious nature. The infection is rebellion. The Greek word that is translated rebellious is also translated insubordinate or unruly, which was used in verse what an elder or overseer's, overseer's child must not be. And it describes those who throw authority. They're those who assert. And Paul this word three times in the pastoral epistles. And the use of the word here is to signal that the problem was with professing believers. These, these teachers are professing believers. But as we'll see as we progress in the passage, they're not truly born again. And we'll Get a zoom in on that when we look at verses 15 and 16. I had a recent encounter with a man who approached me to tell me about his ministry. And he told me about how he goes to um, local coffee shops and he um, looks for people who are sitting around and he tries to share the gospel with them. And when I heard that. I was like, wow, that's fantastic. That's great. Great opportunity. Of course, there are a lot of good fishing holes. Of course, coffee shops with people um, sitting around or 
filled with great opportunities. So at first this sounded encouraging and legitimate, but he went on to tell me that he's been doing this ministry for over 40 years and that these words to me, no one can do what he does. Nobody can do what he does. I thought, oh, oh really? And then he went on and he shared that churches are filled because of his ministry. Again, I was very intrigued and so... Um, I just started to ask some probing questions, and I have to admit I was a little bit skeptical, but I wanted to gain perspective. So I asked him what church he went to, and he shared that he didn't go to church. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I asked him, what ministry leaders provided oversight so that he had accountability and direction for his ministry? And he mentioned that he had none. This man's mission, in the end, was to convince me and other people to basically do exactly what he does, which I found very interesting considering the fact that he had already shared with me that nobody can do what I do. Okay, pretty difficult approach to making disciples if nobody can ever do what you do. Needless to say, our conversation didn't end very well for a few different reasons that we won't go into now, but at the forefront of the situation, what became evident to me was this man's insistence on his autonomy and his complete disregard for the authority of the local church. And to teach others to be like him, God's word clearly calls us to submit and obey ourselves to the leaders in the church, Hebrews 13, 17, and not to forsake the assembly, Hebrews 10, right? That was just the beginning and the first part of his list of insubordinates. Never mind all the one another's that God graciously allows us to fulfill when we're in, in the local church, the one another's of Scripture, which apparently he was okay with dismissing. Our firm grasp on God's Word by sincere devotion, sound doctrine, sobering discernment, that is what protects us from such rebellion. Okay? Such... Uh, uh, um, such rejection, really, of, of what God's word would, would have us obey. And like a good filter that takes the impurity out of water, and I mentioned this in our hermeneutics class, God's word, when understood correctly, provides a filtration system for sound doctrine and discernment that filters out false teachers that we might hear when we're listening to Christian radio stations, that filters out uh, prosperity messengers, when we're flipping through maybe TV stations or listening to sermons online, or when a Christian author writes a book that has no biblical basis and has no theological substance or conviction, but bases everything on psychology. You know, a book that I picked up at, um, or, uh, when I attended a recent uh, conference, it's called Counseling Hard Cases, True Stories Illustrating the Sufficiency of God's Resources to Scripture. It's a, r- a really good resource. talks about those who have dealt with sexual abuse, talks about anorexia, talks about um, OCD, 
uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, how to, how to uh, counsel such difficult situations. And I, I personally know one of the authors on, on the book, Stuart Scott, and there's another person, Heath Lambert, okay? But when, when I'm reading this book, I, I still have to use the Scriptures, right, to, to function as a filter as I read it, okay? This, I, I have to read it with a biblical I can't allow this to happen. And then what happens sometimes, this happened to me before, too, just through reading a book, and then there's a position that maybe the author takes, then all of a sudden I find myself twisting this to fit this. And that's vitally important. And it doesn't just happen with books, right? God wants us to use Scripture to filter out TV shows or movies, people that we are spending time with, all the activities of life, so that we don't subject ourselves to something that is going to pull our attention away, our focus from Christ, and be an impediment to our spiritual progress. This is a good transition to our second infection in verse 10, which is uselessness. The Greek word is translated empty talkers. And this adjective can also be translated idle, vain, or useless talkers. And the point is this. There is no real substance to what false teachers say. In the end, false teachers may sound impressive, and they have this seemingly learned rhetoric but the content of what they say is useless and has no it serves no purpose it's like a flat car uh, a tire on a flat car it's it, it'll serve you like a at a steakhouse it it'll serve you like a fork with a brothy soup okay it's it's like um, ejection seats on a helicopter Windshield wipers on a submarine, a chocolate teapot, a glass hammer. Okay, I think you guys get the point. All right, right? But this is what Paul was having Timothy see. He's saying there is no substance. It's, it's useless. They lack substance because they're devoid of truth and accuracy and precision. And in a strikingly similar way, the Apostle Paul urged Timothy in Ephesus, just like Titus and Crete, in handling false teachers. Turn back with me just a couple pages to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You can see this because we're right in Titus and, and uh, the Timothys are right next door. And uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3, we see Paul use the same form of the Greek word. Starting in verse 3, it says this, And as I urged you, Paul writing to Timothy, Upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to vain discussion. That's what your translation might say, or fruitless discussion. That's the exact same word. That empty talk, that vain talk, fruitless discussion. And the Greek word translated uh, fruitless discussion, it, 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 
not only does it share the same root, but it lets us know what Paul was saying to both Timothy and to Titus are consistent in that false teachers aren't going to do anything that are going to edify you. They're not going to build you up. They're Christ. They're not going to allow you to make measurable spiritual progress in your life. Listening to false teachers is like going to an apple orchard to pick apples with no fruit on the tree. Trees might be beautiful. It's a waste of your time. There's nothing that can come from that. In the end, it will leave us hungry. In the end, it will leave us deceived. In the end, it will leave us wanting. There's a third infection revealed in verse 10, and it is deception. And the root of this word is used in verb form in Galatians 6.3 where Paul says, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And here in Titus, it's describing someone who deceives the mind or thinking of another. And as we'll see in our next verse, they are dealers in myths. And they season their teaching with the commandments of men so that they may turn others from the truth. And there are many professions today that have reputations for being uh, deceiving or deceptive. Probably one of the most notorious are used car salesmen, right? They're not all corrupt. Just most of them. (laughs) <laughs> just kidding. My, my best friend, one of my best friends on the planet, Christian brother back in Hickory, North Carolina, Randy Turner, has shared with me about all the deception and the corruption that exists in the industry. And it's exactly why there's a company that's called Carfax has done so well. Right? It's, it's a company that provides the history of what's happened with a vehicle. And maybe you've seen some of the commercials and there's this car salesman that's saying, oh, she's a, she's a real beauty. She's got really low miles. And, and the person says what? How do they respond? Show me. We can talk. Show me the car facts, right? Show me the car facts. That's ex- exactly what they're asking for. And this is what ministry maggots do as well. Truths are concealed to sell us something that is disguised. And a firm grasp on God's Word will help us to say, just show me the Scriptures. Just show me the God facts. Really. In the end. Show, show me the God facts. Yeah, I understand position. Help me to understand because I need to understand from the Scriptures how you, you arrive there. Show me the God facts. We'll look closer at some of the deception under our second point. But deception is an infection that false teachers spread. There's a fourth infection that comes in verse 10, and it's religiosity. As Paul progresses in his description of the infectors, he has progressed by calling them rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. And now he specifies who he's talking about even more by saying, especially those of the circumcision. Because so many of the early Christian Jews, um, uh, early Christians were Jews, churches in early New Testament times 
were plagued by those of the circumcision. And some of them were called Judaizers because in their attempt to obligate people to uh, ceremonial law and to rabbinical writings and traditions, they, they brought these things to bear and they used them equally with Scripture when their basis comes from men. And we're going to talk more about that later. And we, we also saw a little bit of a glimpse of this when we talked about the, the background of the book, that there were a lot of Jews on the island of Crete. It even mentions that in Acts 2 when making a reference to the Jews and, and the Cretans. Okay? The infection of religiosity focuses on man-centered influences, which will connect under our second point. This takes us to the fifth connection, which is disunity. Paul let Titus know that the infection of false teachers in verse 11 is upsetting whole families. They, false teachers, give birth to disunity. And the verb translating upsetting is a compound word that literally means up and turn. They upturn things. And it's the same word that was used when the Lord Jesus Christ entered into the temple and went up to the money changers. He upturned the tables. In disgust, right? He, he destroyed them. In this case, we're talking about families. And more literal translation is houses, which can either refer to the structure that people are in or it can refer to the people that are inside. And that's, that's the latter view that's, that's uh, being taken here. Entire families suffer. Entire families are upturned. They're destroyed. They're infected with disunity. Ministry maggots or the infection of their false teaching drives wedges between family relationships. And we want to be ministry magnets. We want people to be drawn together in unity because of God's Word, right? We want, we want unity in the church. We, we we can't have ministry magnets. We can't have these people who would show up and, and, and drive a wedge of division. Who would attempt to hijack the discipleship ministry of our church and say that we only should be hanging out at coffee shops? Only. That's it. That's, that's, that, that's what it all boils down to. Again, God's the judge. Don't know where his heart is at. I can only tell you what I witnessed and what I see. So in the church, our fidelity to the Word of God should draw us closer together, unlike false teaching that promotes disunity. One commentator even speculated that since most New Testament churches met in homes, that Paul could be referring to entire churches being impacted, not just single families. And I thought that's, that's, a plausible, uh, that's a plausible position considering the context of our passage which is focusing on church. Well, the sixth infection of false teachers is selfishness. And it's found in verse 11. It finishes by stating that false teachers teach things that they should not teach for sordid gain. And in the Greek, this is an on, it's in the present tense, so it represents an ongoing action. It's something that they continue to do. And it expresses the manner or means of their deception. And ironically, the word translated teaching is the same word that Paul used when talking to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2 when he says, entrust these things to faithful men, right? 
teaching them, right? What, what, what I've taught you. And so in a same way, they were um, using the strategy to um, make and raise up their own disciples of destruction. And at the root of this is the motive of sordid gain. And I want to look at this a little bit more closely. The noun translated gain describes whatever might be to one's profit, advantage, or gain. And it's not restricted just to monetary gain. Okay, but it also could include social, social leverage, um, you know, clout, your, 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 your influence over the lives, right? And I think we see examples of this with some of the false teaching that exists in, in America when it becomes more about the name of the person becoming great than the name of Christ becoming great, right? It's like Jesus has written this big on the, in, in the title and the author's name is written yay big. Okay? All of these infections help us see why it's so important to deal with false teachers in God's prescribed way. And, and the word uh, sordid is also, um, it, it describes shameful, ugly, or dishonest gain. And so our first point and our first answer to our question, how does God want you and I to respond to false teachers because of their infections of rebellion, uselessness, deception, religiosity, disunity, and selfishness? God wants us to silence them. I intentionally waited to um, share what this word to silence meant because I wanted us to see the infections first and to see the very real threats that are posed by false teachers if we do not respond in faithfulness. In verse 11, God's word says that false teachers are people who must be silenced. Present tense again, it's a, a continuous action. If they continue to teach, they continue to be, they, they must be silenced. The compound Greek word is made up of two words, epi, which means over, and stoma, which means mouth. Epistoma. What's it mean? We all good at it. That's it. They, they, they need a hand. In, in the sense, it's talking about a bridle, a bit, a a gag to make sure that they remain silent. One commentator shared, it is not enough to ignore some words, expressions, or teachings. They must be stopped. In this case, such people are silenced by having their teachings refuted by godly leaders with sound answers to their foolishness. This should be done without quarreling, and with great patience, holding out hope even for false teachers themselves to be delivered from their demonic deception. And so, as it relates to us and application in the church, for us, it really is the responsibility of our church leadership, our elders in the church, to make sure that no one is teaching false teaching within the walls of our church, right? We, we, we have no control of what's taking place in someone else's church, what's taking place online. God has given us and, and, and ordained that we would make sure that it does not take place here. And that's what we're committed to. And on an individual level, there's a responsibility uh, for silencing false teachers as well. And this can stem anywhere from listening to, uh, again, something that's on the fish that just is not 
You don't want to boost the ratings for that. You can turn the station, turn it off, and it could stem all the way to having to go to your son or daughter's Christian school because one of the teachers is teaching some strange doctrine or some aberrant position that the scriptures don't teach, and you may have to go. And there's a host of things in between. Certainly another application is our continued commitment and study of God's word. Maybe you're already committed to a Bible study in your workplace and you're connecting with some people and you're, you're making some progress there. Maybe you have your own plan. You've mapped out how you're studying the scriptures over the course of the year and you're investing time on your own. But just this week, some men and women in our church started a Bible study on Thursday nights going through First Peter. And it's excellent. We, we want to support that. And so if you're available on Thursday nights and you don't currently have a Bible study, I know that they, the dozen people that showed up for the first night of the study would love to have you guys team up with them and, and really rally around God's Word so that we can continue to develop our firm grasp. On an even more practical level, we have our Vacation Bible School at the end of the month. And there are opportunities to help kids study God's Word, right? So that they're, they're vulnerable, right, to, to false teaching. And we want to invest in them. And if you're interested, you can always see Art and Denise Yee about serving there from, for, for details. You can stop and see them. Anything that we can do to improve our grasp on God's Word equips us to handle false teachers when we encounter them. How does God want us to respond to false teachers. The first God-honoring response is silence them. The second God-honoring response is reprove them. Ministry maggots spread man-made or man-centered influences. And here's what verses 12 to 14 have to say. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Paul states clearly that there are man-made influences of false teachers. And for those of you taking notes, I'm going to give those to you up front here. Influence number one is man-made culture. Influence number two is man-made myths. Influence number three is man-made commands. And our time is disappearing <laughs> quickly. Uh, so the first influence, again, is man-made culture. In verse 12, Paul quotes a Cretan prophet who, describes, um, who he describes as a prophet of their own. And it was this guy by the name of Ep- Epimenides. And Paul's recognition of Epimenides as a prophet simply validated what their current culture believed about who he was. He was um, the 6th century, uh, 600 years uh, before, uh, the, before Christ, and he was considered one of the seven great Greek wise men of the times. And so um, Paul, who was well-read and well-educated, his understanding of the Cretan culture ends up working in his favor since Epimenides was a well-respected Cretan philosopher. By quoting and affirming him, this would gain favor with, with Paul. And you see what he's done? This is brilliant. I mean, and of course the Holy Spirit led Paul to, to, to play this card. But he, he, he quotes somebody who's saying something critical. So it's not going to come back. The backlash isn't coming back on Paul. And Paul just affirms that this testimony is true. So the people were really in a tight spot because they were against 
refuting Epimenides, who is one of their um, feared and well-known intellectuals, or um, they had to, to just agree with Paul that this is, this is the case. And so in ancient times, um, Cretans um, had a lot of, there was a lot of philosoph- philosophical stuff that was taking place. And so Paul's able to make his, his point about the reality of their man-made culture as harsh as it might appear. And basically Paul is saying Epimenides, um, he said that uh, you're, you're all liars, evil beasts, and, and lazy gluttons. And then he just affirms by saying this testimony is true. And this was the influence of man-made culture on the island of Crete. And we've talked about this in the past, but the most uh, well-known falsehood that was spread among the Cretans and the people was that the tomb of who? Remember? Zeus. That's right. That Zeus's grave was on the island. And as one commentator shared, even in light of their own pagan belief, that claim was foolish because Zeus was considered to be immortal. But they lied and they, they, they shared that his tomb was on the island. The truth of the assertion that Cretans are always liars is also reflected in the ancient phrase to Cretanize, which was used as a figure of speech for lying, end quote. And the idea of them being evil beasts communicates that the culture lived like wild animals acting on their sensual appetites and passions. In fact, it's, one commentator was sharing that there probably wasn't, because the island was so small, there probably weren't even wild beasts on there. So any reference to wild beasts was a reference to people. Their laziness, which can also be translated idle bellies, was also well known. Just like the sluggard in Proverbs 26.15, the one who is weary from reaching his hand, he's too tired to even bring it up to his mouth again. This was an accurate description of the culture that was pathetically apathetic. And so having established the basic character of the Cretans, the context of our passage reveals that it's also strongly in, that it strongly influenced the false teachers who apparently allowed this man-centered, man-made culture to creep into the churches. And so Paul now uses it to make a point. And he says this, For this reason, reprove them severely. How does God want us to respond? He wants us to silence them. He wants us to reprove them. This is the second God-honoring response. The reproof is directed at the false teachers, by the way. This is going towards the general population. This is targeted at the, the general population. Your Bible translation might say rebuke, expose, or show them their fault. And that's really what's in view here. And then there's this adverb that comes uh, with the verb that can be translated severely, sternly, or maybe your translation says sharply. And the idea is to cor- correct with precision. It's to use the word to, to right the ship. And in order to do that, you have to have a firm grasp on it. It's required. But I want to say that this is not a license to get harsh with someone, even false teachers. The Apostle Paul shared with Timothy the importance of not being quarrelsome even when you deal with people who are teaching or advocating something different in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. 
The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in, an, in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. And this is a good lesson for us all to remember that our passion in correcting others, even false teachers, doesn't give us a pass. It's not, it doesn't give us permission to, to, to be unkind or to be impatient. Or to lack gentleness. This is where Proverbs 16.21 come to the rescue. Great proverb. The wise in heart will be called understanding. And sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Reflective of what Paul was even sharing in Colossians 4. That, that our speech would always be seasoned with salt. And seasoned with grace. So, so that we find favor with those who are outside. Right? Shares that. In Colossians 4. Our spiritual goal every time we correct someone is the repentance. And this is revealed in verse 13 that finishes by saying, so that they may be sound in faith. The conjunction here translated so that reveals that it's a purpose clause. One commentator said it this way, such rebukes should be employed only with redemptive purposes in mind. End quote. I thought that was really strong. And so it's logical to suggest that if false teachers are silenced, and then they're properly reproofed with the gospel that this could lead to soundness of faith if they repent of their ways. And we talked about what this word sound was, and it's the exact same one that we, we saw um, two Sundays ago. It, it's the word that we get our English word hygiene, right? So it's healthy when we're talking about healthy doctrine. There's a distinction that needs to be made between false teaching and false teachers. False teaching or inaccurate teaching is something that can occur with anyone who teaches. Believers, if we don't have a firm grasp or a proper understanding, I, I can teach something falsely even from this pulpit. That's different from being a false teacher. When we're talking about false teachers in the context, this passage we're talking about professing believers, but they're not truly born again. And they're committed to all those infections that we described in our opening point. And all this illustrates the need for the gospel. The truths of the gospel function like an antibiotic does against an infection, like a bacteria, okay? And. False teachers try to invade the body of the church and the gospel exposes and kills the bacteria of false teachers because it leads them to true faith, true repentance, and submission to God's Word. It doesn't mean that they'll, 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 they'll all of a sudden miraculously start teaching perfectly, but it does mean that false teachers will repent of their rebelliousness, their deception, the disunity, their, their false motives and false ways that they were previously committed to. Well, our time is up. Verse 14 shares that they were also paying attention to man-made myths, which Paul called Jewish myths, which likely had their origin from the Judaizers mentioned earlier. And the verse goes on to mention commandments of men, which um, also most likely uh, had its or origination in rabbinical traditions that were also man-made. 
An example of examples of this are in the scriptures. They were men that forbidden marriage and abstinence from foods. And one theologian shared, Paul probably did not specify particular heresies here because there are so many varieties. Had he failed to mention a certain, a certain heresy, some immature and, and undiscerning believers might have concluded that it was therefore excluded from the warning. The apostle rather admonished that everything that was taught in the name of Christ be measured against the Old Testament uh, Old Testament scriptures and the teaching of the apostles. And so I was trying to think of some examples where man-made commands try to creep into the church and having just spent the last four years in North Carolina Bible Belt and, and, her, and being exposed to even some of the um, instruction that was taught or given in some Southern Baptist church, church settings that um, the, the use of alcohol, drinking alcohol is, is a sin. I don't know if you know that. Okay, drinking alcohol is a sin. Okay, this is the, the, this is what's what's taught. There's no no place, and even if you try to go to them and explain to them that you know Jesus drank wine, no, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. It was only grape juice. That was what was what was made. Never mind oinos in the Greek. It's it's wine. That's what it means. Nope, nope. It was it was grape juice. And so that's just another example. Sometimes there's um, churches, it can be related to dress, right? If you, um, you dishonor the Lord if um, you show up wearing jeans. You dishonor the Lord if you wear shorts to church. You dishonor the Lord. You're double sinful if you wear jean shorts. <laughs> no. But um, maybe it's your, the, the, the leadership. They don't truly honor They didn't put a tie on. Um, when, when, they, when they showed up and, and somebody doesn't. These are man-made things that, that try to, to come in, and that's just a small taste of man-made commands. Well, um, just let me give you what I can for, for this last point. How does God want, us, want you and I to respond to false teachers? There are three God-honoring responses. Silence them, reprove them, and our third and final response is this. He wants us to evangelize them. Verses uh, 15 and 16, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. False teachers share a common, they share common identities. And they're displayed in these two verses. And for those of you who are taking uh, notes, I'll, I'll give them to you. You can go back at a later point. Identity number one is false faith. Verse 15, they are defiled and unbelieving. Identity number two is false purity. Verse 15, nothing is pure because everything they do is grounded in false motives with impurities. Identity number three is false thinking. Verse 15, their mind and their moral compass are defiled. Identity number four is false relationship. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by how they live. Their relationship with God isn't real. Identity number five is false fruit. Verse 16 finishes, they are detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And the gospel calls 
false teachers to repentance. It is the call of the Christian life that allows us to walk in faithfulness and be fruitful to the Lord. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Actually, the full verse. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And just last week, I had the opportunity to just even talk about this with some folks in our church. Our church that, that this, the summary of the life can be summed up in two words. Be faithful. And when you're faithful, your life will be fruitful. Really, those two words sum it all up, don't they? Faithful and fruitful. And oh, that we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And he goes on and he says something that's so encouraging. I might become a partaker of it. What is he talking about? Paul's talking about is he's faithful to instruct people according to the gospel, according to God's word. That, that's allow them to, that allows them to walk in faithfulness. That allows their life to produce fruitfulness. Then they get to enjoy the sweetness of that fruit of God at work in their life. And, Paul, and I get to partake of that. And so do we, my friends. We get to partake of it too. When you encourage somebody who's really struggling, maybe it's a friend just really in the battle with their purity, and you come alongside of them and say, you, you, you need to do this in the Lord's strength, right? You need to stand firm. Ephesians 6, 14, stand firm in the strength of His might, right? The shield of faith. You come along and you, you're meeting and they make great progress and it's so sweet. You get to eat that fruit together. Or you get to look back on on the trip that just took place to Czech Republic and just even to hear the report that we got to hear and think about the efforts of Gina and Julia and Pastor Marcus and his wife Amy and, and all and Daniel and Alash and everybody at the church camp and all of them sowing seeds for the gospel and, and a couple of people coming to faith and their lives forever changed who are going to be a part of that church now, that growing church, and they get to eat that fruit together. Praise God. Watch them be baptized. Watch them eventually marry another believer. Watch them be a first-generation Christian home. Praise God. It's awesome. It's awesome. It is the gospel. And this verse, verse 16, is insignificant as it might seem. This is the hinge, okay? This is the hinge that opens up our understanding to the, to the rest of the book as, as, as it swings the door wide open, right? Putting not, not only the emphasis on the, the false teachers and their need for the gospel, but also that um, the, the people who are in the church, that they would be walking in faithfulness to the gospel, that their lives would be producing fruit. And we're going to learn more about that next week. I thank you for giving me a few extra minutes, which is my custom. My voice is back. Okay, all right, sorry to fade there a little bit, but how does God want you and I to respond to false teachers? Silence them. Evangelize them. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we're um, so thankful for the firm instruction that you provide for us. 
And we live in a world that is filled with false teachers and false teaching. And it's accumulated over the centuries. And as each day comes, there will be more and more false teaching than there ever has been in the history of humanity, just as time progresses. And yet your word is steadfast. Your word is sure. Your word illuminates our path. It illuminates our understanding. And it is why you want the leaders of the church, it is why you want the members of the church to have a firm grasp upon it. Help us, we pray. Help us to, to um, pursue you, to pursue your word. Help us to join a study, to link arms with other brothers and sisters, to edify each other. And we thank you for the glorious truths of the gospel that right the ship of all false teaching if a false teacher responds. Why? Because they'll humbly submit to your word. They'll come under the authority of your lordship. And so we just pray that you'll continue to um, bless our church, bless the teaching that takes place from this pulpit, help us to see with greater clarity Allow our care group ministry, allow our um, Bible studies, allow our personal time in your word to be edifying. And Lord, we pray that you would allow us to enjoy the sweet fruit that can come with walking with others in faithfulness. It is so incredible to enjoy that fellowship. We do lift up our brothers and sisters in Czech Republic this morning. Thanking you for Pastor Marcus and Amy, Daniel and Alash, Gina and Julia, and everybody in Clodno. This is kids. You would bless them as a family. And Lord, we look forward to the remainder of our celebration this morning as we enjoy fellowship and, and time just talking about how you're at work in our lives. We give you praise for all of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.